sermon text for today is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well, even make the deaf hear and the mute speak. Certain events define our lives don't they? I remember shortly before the birth of our first son, a pastor said to us, sleep all you can because you never sleep again, as though sleep can be accumulated. Boy, was he right. Children transform our lives. Other things transform our lives as well. Work, relationships, hardships tragedies. All of us can think of experiences in our lives that we can look back and say, I've never been the same since. But the greatest transformation we can experience in our life is not children, marriage, work, or the death of a loved one. The greatest transformation anyone can experience in life is to come into contact with the God of this universe, with Jesus Christ. Today, we'll meet a man who was transformed by Jesus. This man was mute. This man was deaf. He was destitute. But Jesus changed his life with his power. And this man's transformation is the transformation that you are being offered today through Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus always uses his power to transform our lives and transfer us from destitution to dignity. So you may be asking, Pastor Lucas, why are you preaching this text? on Easter Sunday? Well, for two reasons. First, the message of Easter is the quintessential message of destitution to dignity. Christ was victorious over death. And he promises us the same victory if we trust in him. But really, the reason why I'm preaching on Mark 7, 31 through 37 today is because last week I preached on Mark 7, 24 through 30. And guess where I'm going next week? You guessed it right. Mark 8, 1 through 10. At Central, we believe that the careful, sequential, 
expository preaching of the Bible builds a healthy church. I am not trying to preach my best sermon today because it's Easter. I do that every week. I try to preach faithfully every week because God's Word deserves that. So we don't look for special devices for ministry in our church. We don't look for shortcuts. We don't look for worldly schemes. We are a simple church that believes in the power of the Word of God. One of the reasons why we study the Bible sequentially like this is because we want to understand not just our passage for today, but we want to understand the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. We want to understand the whole counsel of God. If this was a standalone sermon, we would have no context to understand Mark's arguments. Now, let me say this. Sometimes standalone sermons are good. I'm not saying that they're never good. They are good, but they should not be the regular diet of a church. And this is why so often people weave themselves into the center of the biblical narrative because they can't see the whole picture. If Jesus healed the deaf man, that means he will heal me too. It's guaranteed. Or he will do whatever is necessary to improve my life. But if we read the entirety of the Gospel of Mark in context, we can see clearly that this is not Mark's point. Mark, in his gospel, is helping us understand who Jesus is. And who is Jesus for Mark? The goal of Mark, in his gospel, is to help the readers understand the identity of Jesus, the Son of God. Look at the very first verse in the gospel of Mark. He tells us who Jesus is right there. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us in verse 1 who Jesus is. But then he goes on not to tell us again, but to show us who Jesus is, the Son of God. So Mark shows us that Jesus is the Son of God through his teaching. Jesus taught the message of the gospel with authority. When people heard Jesus preach, they would say, We've never heard somebody preach or teach like this. The message of the gospel is the message that the kingdom of God is at hand and we have access to it through faith and repentance. Jesus' teaching is fruit-producing teaching. He not only taught the kingdom, his teaching built the kingdom. Mark also shows us that Jesus is the Son of God through his authority. We have seen this in incredible ways. By the way, if you'd like to get caught up with the Gospel of Mark, we have uh, uh, coming up in just a few weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark for a year. All of our messages are in our website. Okay? We also have it in podcasts. You can, you can access it in many ways, sermon audio. You can listen to all of them. And then you can get caught up if you're not with us. But we've seen Jesus demonstrate authority through his miracles. 
He controls nature. He heals the sick. He delivers the demon-possessed. He raises the dead. He forgives sin. The miracles of Jesus, including the miracle that we will see today, pointed beyond themselves. They pointed us to the authority of Christ, which is divine authority. The past few weeks since we entered chapter 7, we have seen that Jesus has been on a relentless war against legalism. Legalism is when anyone adds requirements beyond the gospel for others to come to Christ. Jesus does not like that. And he makes that plain and clear. When we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel altogether. Jesus' greatest human opposition came from the scribes and Pharisees. We have been seeing them. A group of Jews who were zealous for tradition, but whose religion was a mile wide, but only an inch deep. They indicted Jesus for not following the traditions of men. But Jesus turns the mirror on them and shows them that they profess love for God with their lips. But their hearts were far from God. Unlike the Pharisees and the scribes, we'll meet today a man who could not sing the praises of Christ. But after he met Christ, his mouth could not be silenced. Since this exchange with the Pharisees and the scribes earlier on in chapter 7, Jesus turned his attention to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. Last week, he went through the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. This is going to be really relevant for our passage for today in just a little bit. There he met a woman who was Syrophoenician. In other words, she was a Canaanite woman. She was a Gentile with a great problem. Her daughter was possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. She met Jesus at a dinner table, and she challenged all of the norms of Jewish tradition. She asked him to deliver his daughter. Initially, it seemed that Jesus was unwilling to help her. But as we saw last week, Jesus was simply testing her faith. And she passed. She persisted. She asked Jesus, and he affirmed her faith and granted her request. Today, our story picks up where we left off last week. Once again, a person in the Gentile country comes to Jesus. Once again, a person with a great need comes to Jesus. Once again, we see Jesus' mercy and grace on display. So three words will guide us through our passage today. Three words will give us an outline. The words are mute, miracle, and missional. So first let us consider mute, the mute man. Geographical movement in the Gospels are often really important. They show us the purpose of Jesus in his ministry. In verse 31, we get a little bit of geographic information. Jesus left the place where he had met the Syrophoenician woman. That's the city of Tyre. 
and he returned to the Sea of Galilee by way of Sidon. Now, this is a strange route. He went north to go southeast. It would be like going to Miami by way of Jacksonville. Why does Jesus do that? Mark doesn't tell us why. But also, Mark doesn't tell us, Mark doesn't tell us how long Jesus spent in any of these places either. So Jesus might have gone to visit Sidon, stayed a few days there, and then went back to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, we've spent a lot of time there in this series, in this series, is actually a lake. And this has been the hub for Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark. This is where he's met the disciples. This is where the crowds came to him initially. By the Sea of Galilee, we find the city of Capernaum, which was Jesus' home. There, there was a house. The Gospel of Mark talks about it as the house, likely referring to Peter's and Andrew's house where Jesus likely lived for the first part of his ministry. Mark tells us that Jesus ends the journey at a city or a region called Decapolis. That's at the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. The name Decapolis comes from a Greek word that simply means ten cities. Because there were ten predominantly Greek Gentile cities that made up this region. This is not the first time Jesus comes to the region of Decapolis in the Gospel of Mark. Back in chapter 5, he got on the boat with his disciples. He fell asleep and his disciples feared the raging sea. Jesus woke up, calmed the sea, and then they sailed in placid waters to the region of Decapolis. They arrived at a, at a town called Gadara, at the country of the Gadarenes. There he was met by a man. A man that we know as the Gadarene demoniac. A man who was possessed by a legion of demons. By thousands of demons. Jesus delivers this man from all his demons. And this man is transformed. This man asks Jesus, let me be one of your disciples. But Jesus says to him, no, I have a mission for you. So he commissions this man as the first missionary to the Gentiles. Mark 59, Jesus says to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So it is not surprising that when Jesus arrives at Decapolis, again, he is met by a crowd. His fame had spread, perhaps due to the missionary work of the former demoniac. In verse 32, Mark tells us that they, he doesn't tell us who the they are, but they say that they brought a man who had experienced deep brokenness to Jesus. This man was a deaf and mute man. Mark tells us that he had a speech 
impediment. He had good friends, though, because these friends brought him to Jesus. And these friends pleaded, begged Jesus to heal him. By the way, this is a good reminder for all of us, right? What is a good friend? A good friend is someone who brings us to Jesus in our hour of need. A good friend is someone who points us to Jesus when we need him. Now, we do get a background for this story in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 15. But this miracle is one of three miracles that are unique to the Gospel of Mark. Only Mark retells us this story. But why does Mark highlight this miracle in such a special way? Why is this miracle so important for Mark? And uh, Carl, here's where I answer your question. I think we get a hint for this in the word that Mark uses for the speech impediment that this man experienced. The word is mogilalo, a Greek word. This word was used here in Mark 7, 32. And it's also used another time in Isaiah 35, verse 6, and nowhere else. Now, you may, you, may, you may say, Pastor Lucas, I thought the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and that is right, it was. But Mark is pointing us to the Septuagint. Mark is pointing us back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the writers of the New Testament used extensively. But now, remember this. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. Mark was a disciple of Peter, and he is likely writing his gospel to the church in Rome. So Mark doesn't often cite the Old Testament in his gospel because his audience would have been unfamiliarized with it. But whenever he does cite the Old Testament, he does it with deep intentionality. Even when it's just a single word. So we better pay close attention here to what Mark is doing. So since, since Mark is using the word that appear in Isaiah 35, a small principle of biblical interpretation is this. Whenever the New Testament cites an Old Testament writing, even if it's just a single word, we need to go back to the Old Testament and ask, what is the context there? So that we can understand the purpose for the New Testament writers to use that text. So what's going on in Isaiah 35? Isaiah 35 is the culmination of a section in the book of the prophets where God proclaims deep judgment on the nations. In chapter 34, he uses that nation of Edom, the Edomites, as an example. And he promises that their city would be completely desolate by judgment. 
He says that their fortresses would be filled with thorns and thistles. Their cities would be filled with wild animals like crows and hyenas and jackals. But listen to the opening verses of Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Deserts being transformed. The desert shall rejoice and blossom with the crocus, a small, beautiful, delicate flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the glory of Lebanon. Where have we been? The gospel of Mark has been in Lebanon. The gospel, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, just south of Lebanon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. In other words, though you are suffering, take courage. Verse 4. So that those who have an anxious heart be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Who is God speaking to? Lebanon. He's speaking to the Gentile countries. He's speaking to the very people that Jesus is on a mission for right now. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and listen to this, and the tongue of the mute, that's our word, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So what the people are observing at this moment, is a fulfillment of a messianic promise to the nations. It is the promise that the blessing of the seed of Abraham would encompass the whole world, would go forth, and would bring praise to the lips of not only the Jews, but the Gentiles also. Friends, coincidences don't happen in the Bible. Even one word that God places in his book, he places it with intentionality. Every word in this book was intentionally written, inspired, and without error. Mark wants us to see the promised Messiah to the nations. The promise that Christ will redeem the whole world. Christ came to fulfill this prophetic promise to the nations. He came to call all to himself. Isaiah 35 is a reminder that though we may suffer for a while today, the restoration we will experience when Jesus returns and redeems the earth will be much greater than our current suffering. The blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute will no longer be affected by the brokenness of their bodies, will no longer be enslaved to the curse that is upon creation because of the sin of our fathers and because of our sin. This past week, I met two recent Cuban immigrants that had a tourist business 
back in Cuba. They acquired old American cars and restored them so that they could offer rides to tourists through Havana. The work that they did on this car with little on these cars with little resource was incredible. Unbelievable. They saw treasure in trash. They were able to transform that which was neglected, abandoned. And the glory of these cars today is greater than the glory of these cars when they were first made. These cars experience decay, destruction, but these cars were transformed by someone with power who worked something in many, in many ways miraculous with them. Friends, in a much greater way, these are promises of God to those who trust in Him that the glory that we will experience upon the return of Christ is greater than the glory that any man has ever experienced. God is not in the business of improvement. If you came to church to better yourself a little bit, that's not what God wants to do. That's not what God will do. God is in the business of transformation. He will take you in your destitution and He will give you complete dignity. When God transforms us, He transforms us completely. Brothers and sisters, what are your great burdens today? Is your body aching? Are you fighting a severe disease? Are your relationships broken? Are you plagued, struggling with fear, depression, anxiety? Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord. That's, that's the final transformation, isn't it? shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Set your mind in the future glory that the Lord has promised you. Don't doubt the glories of heaven. Don't forget that this world is temporary, passing in every way trust the promises of transformation that you have in Christ now let us consider our second word the word miracle so look at verse 33 the friends bring this man to Jesus but Jesus takes this man aside I'm not sure why he does that perhaps not to expose the man or embarrass him I don't know, but it is remarkable that Jesus, in the midst of a crowd, zooms into one person, one man. Here's what I know about this the detail in the text. What is particularly noticeable about this miracle is Jesus' 
personable nature. Jesus is approachable. Jesus doesn't sit in temples and synagogues all day long. He doesn't find a chair in the ivory towers of academia. No, Jesus is constantly near to the hurting. The picture that we see of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is one of a shepherd who smells like sheep. He's a healer who loves to be around the sick. And all this miraculous activity in the Gospel of Mark is a constant reminder that when we come near to Jesus, the kingdom of God comes near to us. Jesus is a Savior who invites people to walk closely with Him. Come to me, all who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is enough sovereignty in Jesus for Him to do all His miraculous work at a distance. At a distance. Jesus could work remotely. But Jesus chooses not to. The Jesus we meet in the Gospel of Mark is acceptable, available. He's present among the people. Now look at the second half of verse 33. And, and this may make you feel a little uncomfortable. Especially if you're a little bit of a germaphobe, okay? And especially after all the social distancing madness that we've experienced in the past few years. But clearly we see in this passage that Jesus couldn't care less about what the CDC has to say. Jesus puts his fingers in the ears of the men. And though that was not enough, he then spits and touches his lips. Now, there's not clarity here on exactly what this means if Jesus spat on his lips and touched it, or if he spat on his hand and touched his lips. Either way, neither one would be CDC approved. But this is the first time that we see Jesus use means to heal in the Gospel of Mark. He spits and touches the man. But why? He has healed with simple touches. He has healed with words well, i think one thing that we're seeing here is that jesus wants to show that the power is really coming from him it, it is his touch it is his saliva but i think there's more here to that i think that this miracle is filled with echoes of creation Jesus, with this miracle, is showing that he came to undo the brokenness of creation. Jesus came to redo creation. Jesus came to recreate creation. God uses means to create men and women, the dirt, the rib. Jesus is using means to recreate this man the way he was intended to be from the beginning. I think it is relevant that Jesus is performing this miracle in the Gentile territory, the culmination of the new creation 
is the glory of God displayed through all the earth. Habakkuk 2, 14. For the earth shall be filled. This is the new creation, okay? For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now in verse 34, Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed. This is a demonstration of the, of the emotional weight of this moment. And then he says, Ithasa, which means be open. Now I can't help but marvel at this word. Ithasa. This is an obscure word. Even today, most scholars are not sure if it's Aramaic or Hebrew. This might be an indication that this man that Jesus was healing might not have been a Gentile. He just lived in Gentile country because Jesus used the Semitic word to speak to him. Mark wanted us to hear this word. It was important for Mark to register the sound of this word. Mark doesn't often use Hebrew words in his gospel again because he's writing to a Gentile audience. But he wanted this word, ifasa, to resonate in our ears. It's interesting. You may look at this word and even think, well, it's misspelled. The PH is there twice. No. This is supposed to sound like a long double F. Lots of air coming out of the mouth with a PH and with a TH. Ifasa. It is impossible to say this word and not think of the breath coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's like Jesus recreated this man with his touch, with his saliva. But now Jesus is breathing order into chaos. He was breathing life into decay. He was breathing dignity into destitution. And this is how Jesus works. And this is how creation works. God breathed life into Adam's lungs and he was born. Friends, we are only born again. When Christ breathed the life of his spirit into our dead souls. The picture of this man overcoming the decay of his body is a picture of what we experience when Christ overcomes the decay of our spirit. Look at verse 35. His ears were open, his tongue was released. This is the mark of the kingdom of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, order takes place, takes the place of disorder. Joy takes the place of pain. Healing takes the place of sickness. Life takes the place of death. This is why Easter, this is what Easter is about, isn't it? The victory of life over death. 
Jesus' victory over death. Every miracle we come across in the Gospels is a miracle that points forward to the great miracle of the resurrection of Christ from the death. The resurrection of Christ was the perfect blow, the fatal blow against all Christ's enemies. And if we are with Christ, if we're found in Him, that blow was dealt against our enemies as well. Now notice what happened here at the end of verse 35. The man began, the man began to speak plainly. The man that the story told us at first that for all intents and purposes was mute and not able to speak, now is able to speak. I was talking to Mark Souter a few months ago, one of our missionaries that works directly with the deaf people groups throughout the word the world about this miracle. And Mark told me that the deaf are always fascinated with this miracle. Why? Because Jesus didn't simply correct his inability to hear or speak. Jesus corrected this man's entire language ability. His mind was made new. That which he never learned to do, he learned. Now, you know that in the English language, one word that we use for a person who is mute is the word dumb, right? And, and so often we can, we can mistakenly, associate, mistakenly associate someone who can't communicate for someone who is mentally impaired. But Jesus corrected all things in this man. This is truly Miraculous, a complete transformation, the power of Jesus, the power that Jesus has of new creation breaking into a falling world. This is the power of resurrection. The power that this man experienced was incredible. This power was the power of Christ. But I want you to notice here, what did this man have to offer in order to receive this power? The only thing this man had to offer in exchange for the power of Christ was his, was his brokenness. He had nothing in his hands to bring. All he had was a great need that could only be met by Christ. Friend, I wonder if you have experienced the power of Christ in your life. I wonder if you have ever approached Christ the same way this man approached him, broken and needy. Friends, this is all we can bring to Christ. Maybe you're here today because it's Easter, and this is the least you can do to be okay with Christ. Friend, you will not experience the power of Christ. Maybe you're trusting the fact that at a point in the past you performed some religious act, a baptism, a prayer. Perhaps you walked down an aisle. Friends, if you're resting in that, you will not experience the power of Christ. Maybe you're trusting the fact that your parents were faithful Christians or your uncle was a preacher 
or that you live in a Christianized culture and you think that you will offer these things to Jesus when he calls you to account for what you've done. Jesus will not accept these things. Jesus only accepts brokenness. Jesus only accepts humility. Jesus only accepts recognition that we are unable to help ourselves. And it's this recognition that drives us to Christ. Have you ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? I challenge you to look throughout the Bible. You will not find that there. But here's the message that you will find in the Bible. Jesus helps those who recognize they can't help themselves. So what would it look like for you to approach Jesus the same way this man approached Jesus? Well, if you haven't come to Jesus, you may not be mute or deaf, but spiritually you are. The spiritual brokenness you experience is called sin. Sin is committed in the mind, in the heart, in the actions, and in attitude. Sin is not just what we do or don't do. It is what we desire and what we don't desire. We all have sinned and can only approach Christ, recognizing our sin and confessing them. them. A sin confessed is a sin forgiven. Jesus died to pay for our sins on the cross. So when we confess our sins, we die to sin with Christ. But if we died with Christ, we are also raised with him. And this is where we experience the power of the resurrection. We are raised with Christ. We receive power to obey. We receive power to change. We receive power to be transformed. The Bible says that when we're raised with Christ, we're raised to a new life. No, we don't claim to be perfect, but we know that in our hearts there's a desire to honor Christ that could have only been born of Him. Friend, this is what you need. You need to throw yourself desperately at the feet of Jesus and beg Him. Say the word, Jesus Say the word, Ifata, so that my mouth can be open, so that my eyes can be open, so that I can behold your glory, and so I can be saved. Have you tried to live a life, Christian life, where you simply fail every time? You find no motivation to be among God's people? You find no motivation to be in the word? You find no motivation to be in prayer? Do you find yourself to be powerless over sin? Friend, if you experience these things, it's because you don't know Christ. But all this can change today if you simply believe that Christ died for you and that he was raised to empower you to live for him. This is the message of the gospel. If this is the first time you've heard this message, I don't care if you've been to church for 50 years, if it's the first time that this message made sense to you, we're going to have a couple here up front that will gladly explain this further. You can also reach out to the person next to you. Chances are they will be able to help you 
understand the gospel and respond to it in faith, I will be glad to talk to you at the end of the service. Now finally, briefly, let's consider the word missional. The transformation of this man was all-encompassing. This man went from mute to missionary. In the beginning of the story, his lips could not form words, but now they couldn't stop speaking of the glory of Christ. It's interesting that Jesus instructs the man and the crowds not to speak of what they saw. This is not the first time that Jesus does this. At times, Jesus tells people to speak of their experiences, right? We heard that from the gathering demoniacs earlier. But at times, he tells them otherwise. Why? We're not sure. But probably because too much popularity with the crowds would prevent Jesus from accomplishing his mission. But once Jesus finishes his work, his words to the, his disciples is unmistakable. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But isn't it amazing that we see this man and this crowd so astonished by the work of Christ that even after being charged by Christ not to speak, they are unable to close their lips. The more Christ charges them to stop speaking, the more they proclaim with zeal. They were astonished. They were shocked beyond measure because he was able to make the deaf hear and he was able to make the mute speak. They saw him and they said, just like creation, he has done all things well. Friends, one of the evidences that you have experienced the power of Christ is that you can't help but speak of the glory of Christ. I, I am astonished when I meet a Christian whose life has been idle in the sharing of the gospel. We must be a gospel-sharing people because if we've experienced the glory of Christ, how can we keep it to ourselves? We must proclaim the gospel because the gospel is the hope of the lost. It is what builds the church and it is what brings glory to God. May our lips never be quiet about the glories of Christ. Central Baptist Church exists, you hear this from me, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for the hope of the lost, for the edification of the church, and for the glory of God in Christ. Why? Because we have experienced the transforming power of Christ. This is why we were created to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So my question to you today is, have you come to know Christ? Have you come to experience His power? Will you come to Him today? Let's pray. Father, work out Your power among us, transforming our lives. Father, give us dignity where we've experienced persecution. Lord, transfer us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.